How many of you um, have ever fail, felt like a colossal failure in life? Anybody? Any? Yes. If you don't have your hand up right now, you are just very shy or you're a liar. Uh, because all of us have felt like a colossal failure at some point in our lives. And one of life's harshest realities is the presence of failure. I mean, we don't, we don't even like to use the word in our lives and culture today, do we? We don't really hear a lot about failure. Unless it's like, you know, college basketball season right now, March Madness, we got to tell all the sappy stories, all the back stories before we get to the game or the Super Bowl or whatever. That's when those stories come out. Other than that, we don't like to talk about failure. We even have a, a well-worn and a, a phrase has been coined that failure is not an option. But I'm here to tell you this morning, and the story for this morning will prove this as well, that failure is an option. In fact, it's not just an option. Failure is a certainty of life. And I would argue, and I need you kind of to believe this this morning, that failure is a necessity of life. And you're like, I didn't really need to hear that, Ryan. I really need to, didn't need to hear that failure is something we do need to go through. But if we navigate and handle failure properly, the discouragement and shame that usually comes with a failure can be stepping stones to a comeback. And what we're going to talk about this morning is what I would term a comeback story. I'm like, it, to me, it is the comeback story of all comeback stories this morning as we talk about Peter and his failure. How many of you are, uh, are car people? Like you really love cars, like old classic cars. Gary, I know you do. I wanted to see that hand. I knew that was Gary's thing. Um, I, what's, what's really fun is to look at car restoration pictures. So for instance, I have this picture up here and I'll ask Gary, I'll, like, I'll quiz him this morning. Brenna, go, go to the next one. Do you know what that truck is, Gary? A Ford what? All right, it, it, I don't think it's a 40. I think, I can't tell what it says up here. A 50, 1950 Ford F1. This is the before picture. They got their hands on it and then look at what happens after they get their hands on it. Boom, right? Like, I don't know. I'm not like a super big car person, but like, I'll take that. This next car is absolutely hands down, no question asked, my favorite classic car, 1969 Camaro. I mean, that thing looks like, like, well, I wouldn't want that thing. Look what they do when they get their hands on it after it. That, give me that right now. If that was just sitting out there right now, I'd be like, sorry, boys and girls, I'm going. Last one, another classic car, a 1957 Chevrolet Bel Air. Just like, hasn't been touched, has been sitting in that barn probably forever, but in the hands of the right person, here's what it becomes. Like, guys, there's something satisfying, isn't there, about seeing an old car or an antique item that has been wrecked or worn or is failing that gets restored. In fact, to see a vehicle or an item restored is sometimes even better than the original. I mean, to think where those cars, just those three right there, where they have been, what those cars have seen, what those cars have gone through, and those cars have been cast aside and marginalized and everybody forgot about them, and then they were rescued, and they were restored, and they were brought back to their initial luster. Sometimes I think that's even greater. And in the same way, if we're going to be really honest, people, like antiques, like old cars, like cast-offs can get ripped and beaten up. I ask you that. You ever feel like a failure? You ever feel like your life, you're just being constantly beat up? And sometimes we fail. Many times we fail. And we need restoration, don't we? In fact, as has been discovered time and time again by mountains of research, one of humanity's greatest fears of all time is what? The fear of failure. What if? What if I don't do well? What if I don't succeed? What if I don't do the right thing? And so what happens and what do you do when you have, you've done something that you swore that you would never do? Better yet, what do you do when you're confronted by the truth and the pain of your failure? What is your response in that moment? And for one of Jesus' closest allies and his disciples, 
His reaction, Peter's reaction, is the same that it would be for most of us here. What did Peter do when he is in that courtyard and he's warming his hands and a servant girl comes up to him and she goes, now wait a minute, aren't you, aren't you one of, aren't, don't you know him? And what did he say? Ah, I don't know him. A little bit later, like, no, aren't you sure? Like, you're, you, I, I believe that you were, I saw you with him. I don't know, I was not with him. And the third time somebody asks him, and in one of the Gospels, it is so strong that he, it says, curses and says, basically, I, I swear to you, a curse on me if I'm lying to you, I do not know this man. Which is very interesting because you remember earlier in Jesus' ministry, as he's coming towards the end of it, and Jesus says, hey boys, I'm going to have to go to the cross, and I'm going to have to die. And what does Peter say? Then we're going to, and if you have to die, I'm going to have to die. Even if everybody else around here abandons you and stops loving you, guess what? I never will, Jesus. And then just a span of a few chapters, he goes from that to, I don't know this guy. Like, what would you do to save your own skin? I, was, I heard a story. There's a book that was written years ago by James Patterson, and it was the day that America told the truth. And they did a, a survey of about over 2,000 Americans and all kinds of questions. And one of the most shocking ones to me was that 25% of the respondents on that survey said that they would abandon their family for $10 million, which some of you are probably sitting there thinking, like, I would do it for a million, so you don't have to give me 10. But, I mean, like, seriously, like, let's, we laugh about that and joke about that. Isn't that sad? That was actually back in the early 90s. Do you think that number has probably gone up significantly? Abandon your family for the rest of life for $10 million. What would you do if given the chance to save your own skin. And what I love the most about the story of Peter is he's denied Christ three times in Matthew chapter 26. It gives us this inside look as to what happens. Matthew 26, verse 75. Suddenly, as Peter had done that for the third time, Jesus' words flashed through his mind that before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And then listen, and he went away. Weeping bitterly. What does Peter do in the moment where he has had the greatest fail of his life? He starts doing what? Running. Running. He runs as far and as fast as he can away from this whole situation. He, he, he makes this mass mistakes and he, he knows, there, there, he feels like there is no way back from this. I've denied the man that I've followed for three years that I even know him. I've spent every waking moment with him. And he runs away, weeping bitterly like a little girl. It's just, it's not a good look, is it? Like Peter the rock. Peter the weeping baby. But again, the important part I want to focus on is he went away. From that moment to the scene that we're going to read this morning in, in the text that I've chosen is that Peter is running Running away from the pain, running away from the shame, running away from the regret, the weight of this colossal, public, epic, massive failure. And as I was thinking this week, it sort of reminds me, and again, I say this because I watch so many Disney movies throughout a week that I really know them well. And, and honestly, do you know, like, Disney movies really preach some good stuff. Like, some of it's really trash, but like this one, I was thinking of The Lion King this week. And you know the moment where Simba is young and he's just really stupid and he's not, here's, here's the thing about it, he's not where he is supposed to be. And so dad has to show up and then we have the whole moment with Scar and, and then he's falling and he's falling and he's falling and he falls on the ground and he's almost dead but he's not quite dead and there's a moment where he's like, ah, and he dies. The whole point of that right there and the whole premise of it is Simba is not where he is supposed to be. And so he understands that I just killed my dad. And the weight of all of that moment comes crashing down on him. And what does Simba do very shortly after that moment where he realizes I've messed up, I'm a failure? What does he do? Runs. 
Guys, it's built into, it's an ingrained instinct in all of humanity and the animal kingdom alike. As someone has observed about this heavy moment, again, this is a really great teaching moment right here. Where is our hero? Where is Simba in this moment? Where is the person who's supposed to be leading the kingdom after his dad has died? And somebody said this, a million miles away from where he's supposed to be. When his people need him the most, he's halfway across the savannah, living a life of obscurity, running from his mistakes and his failures. I don't know where you are when you come in here this morning, where you find yourself, but I have to believe that there's, oh man, I just unplugged my computer. I have to believe that there is at least a person in here who really that resonates with them. Like I'm running. I've been running for so long that I'm worn out. I believe at some level there are so many of us in this room that have been trying and striving and running for so long that you are just, there's no rest in your life because you feel like I have messed up. I've messed up beyond what Jesus can forgive in my life. Oh, hold on for the story today. That's where we find Peter as we come into the end of John's gospel. A light shines on him at the end of this gospel and Peter is beaten up. He's got his tail tucked between his legs and he feels a million miles away from where he's supposed to be. Now, I told you last week that what we read at the end really was the original end of the book. The gospel of John is interesting in, in the fact that there is sort of a double ending to the gospel of John in our English Bibles. If we stopped reading at chapter 20, we would be perfectly satisfied. It would end everything in the Gospel of John very nicely and put a bow on it. If you were writing the musical score to the book of John, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, the music would start to crescendo and the credits would start rolling. We're like, that was a good one. Jesus has revealed himself as the Savior of the world, the resurrected Savior of the world. Thomas has confessed, Thee, my Lord, and Thee, my God. There could not be a greater conclusion to the book, right? But then there's chapter 21. It's, it's known in the cinema world as a stinger. Is that when the credits are rolling and you think the movie is over, they break in with another scene or two. You see, if we end with chapter 20, some things are left undone, aren't they? John intends to deal with these undone things, namely the question we would ask ourselves if we had no chapter 21 is, what in the world happened with Peter? If we had no chapter 21, we would be left with a Peter who is still running and running and running and halfway across and millions of miles away where he's supposed to be. Guys, this gospel, John is so convicted that this gospel will not end until Peter has been brought back into the fold. And not just brought back in, but we're going to see something that happens today. You know what happens. He gets restored to a place of ministry. It's, it's bonkers. And, and, and the gospel will not end. John will not let the gospel end because... The gospel is not just about Jesus' story. It is largely about Jesus' story and his ministry and his death and his burial and his resurrection. But I believe as well, too, the gospel of John is your story and my story. Peter's story. Everything has changed for all of humanity in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we have to admit this. Nothing has changed for Peter yet, has it? He's still the failure. He's still the massive doofus of the story. The gospel is incomplete until the resurrection has been applied to Peter. Guys, this is where the resurrection meets real life in this story of Peter in John chapter 21. I mean, I mean think about it for just a minute. Why in the world doesn't John just stop at chapter 20? I've said a little bit about it, but why does he give us 25 more verses just because he like had a word quota he had to get in? You're like, Peter, that was a little light. You need some more there at the end. No. Studying this week, I have a couple of speculations for why I think John gives us chapter 21. The first and foremost is that Jesus is a great savior. And John really wants to emphasize that. Jesus promises his his band, his disciples, I will 
be buried and I will rise again and that you will see me after the resurrection. You go to Galilee, I will be there and I will meet you. That's where the story picks up when we come into John 21. They have gone to Galilee to meet Jesus. It sounds like this, John chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee, and that is how it happened. In your Bibles, it might say there too, Sea of Tiberias. Sometimes it's called Lake Genesaret. All of them are Sea of Galilee. It's just interchangeable ways to refer to the same body of water. This is how it happened. Several of the disciples were there to meet Jesus in Galilee. Simon Peter, Thomas, nicknamed the twin who we met last week, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that'd be James and John. And I love how this says it here, and two other disciples. Like, how would you like to be those guys, by the way? You're like, really, John? I don't know if John had a beef with them didn't like them. He was trying to get back at them, but he gives all these names. I'm like, oh, this big, great, grand introduction of all these guys and two other disciples. I don't know who they were. doesn't matter. We have seven of the ten disciples here at this point. Don't know why not all of them are not there, but it says, Simon Peter says in verse three, I'm going fishing, which may seem like a really innocent line, but there's a lot going on in here. The rest of the disciples say, we'll come too, because Peter's a natural leader. Whatever Peter says we're going to do, we're going to do it. So they all went out in the boat, but they caught nothing. Not even a little minnow all night. Why doesn't John stop the story in chapter 20? Because Jesus is a great Savior. He's going to do what he promised that he would do. But I believe this as well too. John is a human person, and I think John is a really great friend. See, uh, you remember the story of the resurrection, and two disciples initially run to the tomb, and who are they? We believe them to be John and Peter. And it says actually in the story, and I believe that John and Peter had a really healthy competition going among the disciples. They're like, who's the greatest? He's like, dude, he named me Rock. How does it get better than that? And, and John says, well, <laughs> I am the disciple that he loves the most. They were just friendly competition. And I believe this moment here, John says, I'm convicted I need to be a great friend. I need to show the story of what happens to Peter. Again, at this point right here, especially in verse 3, Peter is still doing what? Running. There is considerable debate among scholars and commentators as to the significance of Peter returning to fishing and his nets. I have come to believe that as I read this over and over again, I don't know if it's really right or wrong, but what Peter is doing is what a lot of us do. When we want to run away from God, when we are, feel like a massive failure, Peter is not just running away, he is busying himself and he is burying himself in distraction. Peter says, what's the one thing I need to know to do? I know how to fish. My mind needs to be cleared. I need to go out and I need to do some fishing, boys. It's important, like I said, to remember, they are in Galilee. They're where Jesus has told them to be to meet him in Galilee. But now they're just a little distracted. They're a little off course. And a day goes by, and a couple of days goes by while the guys are sitting there waiting on Jesus. And, and Peter, being the impetuous man he is, says, you know what? I, Jesus is not going to show up. I mean, like, really? That's how he sees it anyway. He, Peter, guys, is a man of action, isn't he? Like, look, do, 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 do. He's been waiting on that hill with those guys for who knows how long. Even if it was a minute, it was too long for Peter. And so he goes, you know what? Boys, we're going fishing. I mean, which practically, by the way, they need to eat, don't they? So that could have been possibly why they go fishing. Not that they're trying to be disobedient. Not that they're trying to go back to old ways. They just like, need to eat. But here's the thing, guys, as we see in the story with, with Peter, is you can wait for something, you can wait for someone passively, or you can wait for that thing or person actively. Guys, Peter was not a passive person whatsoever. He'll, he'll wait for you, Jesus, but while he's waiting, he's going to be doing something. How many of you are those kind of people, like type A, like I got to do something all the time? Like just sit down and rest. Like you can't even rest, you've got to fidget. sort of in the wrong direction than a stationary one. See, we don't see these things in the story. We're just like, Peter, you're just a failure. You're a massive, just, you're a massive screw-up, Peter. P 
Peter just needed to be redirected constantly, didn't he? Like, Peter, you're on the move. You're just kind of doing the wrong thing, so let me over there. See, there's some people in life that are just like... You know, yeah, you ever seen how hard it is to get, like, a teenage kid off the couch? Gosh, like, you need to pull, like, a front loader in, like, we beep, like, just pull him off that couch. Peter, you don't have to do that with him. He's doing something. Peter needs time to process and clear his mind of everything that has happened in the past days and weeks. His massive failure, what better place for a born fisherman to go than the wide open sea? But the fact remains, guys, we cannot look over this. Peter is running. Peter has failed. Peter is broken. But Jesus is faithful to redeem and restore. He is the great restorationist. You thought those cars at the beginning were amazing? Oh, look what Jesus can do with a life. If John were to end in chapter 20, we would all be remembering how Peter was such a failure. How he felt so bad and so hurt and so disappointed and so discouraged over his failure. But John wants you to know that Peter was restored very uniquely by Jesus. I believe at the end of the day, John deeply loved Peter. Even though they had a little competition, I mean, like, look, guys, it's, it's, it's not hard to see, is it, right? Any, any human with two eyes can see. Peter really, really messed up, denying Jesus three times, running away from him when he really needed to be running to Jesus. But then we get to the book of Acts, don't we? And wouldn't you know it, who is the main catalyst of the growth and the birth of the early church in the book of Acts? Who? Peter. Now, that would be really messed up and weird, wouldn't it, if we only had John 20, and then we went to the book of Acts, and you're like, wait. Like, we left, when we, when we last left Peter, you know, like on a movie, he was denying Jesus three times. He's running away, and now he's standing before people preaching in the most bold way you can possibly be. Makes no sense, chapter 21. That's why we need chapter 21. We get this insider's view of what happens between Peter and Jesus. We continue the story on, starting at verse 4 in John 21. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. Ryan, why don't they know who Jesus is by this time? I don't know. It doesn't doesn't say. We can make a bunch of speculations. I don't know. He called out, fellows, I, I imagine that's exactly how he said it, to fellow, probably in a British accent too, by the way, fellows, have you caught any fish? Like, you know, like sometimes Jesus like just really knows how to zing people, doesn't he? He knows they didn't catch any fish. It's like, <laughs> this is going to be a great one. Have you caught any fish? Uh, no. Oh, we've been out here sweating this entire night. You have the gall and the nerve. Who are you anyways, buddy, to ask if we've caught any fish? And then he said, Jesus, throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll get some. This is like, he's just piling it on here. Oh, yeah, 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 that would work. Like we, oh, oh, yeah, you're obviously right. We've been on the left side of the boat. <laughs> Stupid us, fishermen, we know what to do. The right side of the boat's going to be where all the fish are at magically. And so they did that. And they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. And the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And when Simon heard this for the first time, and I don't know how many days and weeks now, what does Peter do? Puts on his tunic, for he had stripped for work, jumps into the water, and starts going towards Jesus, right? Not running away from Jesus, going towards Jesus. Guys, can I just stop for a minute right there? Really, really obvious insight, but an important one. Stop running from Jesus. Stop. You... You've spent a lot of your life, you spend some weeks just running away from Jesus because you feel so bad about who you are and what you've done. Just start running. That's, you're doing the opposite of what you need to do. Run to Jesus. The other stayed in the boat. I love this, by the way, too, verse 8. The other stayed in the boat, and they pulled the load up onto the shore, for they were only 100 yards from shore. Thank you, Peter. This is really odd, by the way. They're only 100 yards from shore. It's probably shallow enough that Peter is just like not really, he's kind of half swimming, half walking. And I could just imagine all the guys in the boat, can't you too? Like, all right, yeah, hey, go, go for it, Peter. I mean, like, you just stayed in here and we would have been there very soon. But like, go, buddy. Go, that's you, Peter. You've got to show off. 
When they got there, listen to this, they found breakfast waiting for them. Jesus didn't need those fish that they caught. Jesus already had fish, and he was cooking them over a charcoal fire and some bread. And he says, bring some of the fish you've caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard, and again, being old Peter, I got to do this myself, drags the net. Some people have speculated probably a net, and as heavy as they were with 153 fish on them, or probably, it's probably 300 plus pounds that he's dragging ashore. But you know, Peter, oh, in my own effort, Jesus, I've got to show you I can do this. And yet that net had not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew who he was. They knew it was the Lord. And then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples since he had been raised from the uh, dead. Now, did you notice again, and I kind of hit on it there, that fellows, have you any fish? Again, don't tell me Jesus does not just love to get little digs in. Because the word that he uses here is not fellows. In some translations, it may say children, the Greek word is paideon, children, little ones. Actually, in the original translation, you know what he says to the guys? This is so funny. Little boys. <laughs> Who in the world says that to hardened fishermen? And I want you to try that next time you find yourself at like a flying J and you're getting gas and you look over to the diesel island and there's a trucker there and you're like, hey, hey, little boy, where have you come? You'd be smashed before you could even get your words out. That's what he says to him, little boys. It's not a humiliating or demeaning word, though. It's a term of endearment. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, are you still, after all this time, trying to go about things in old, empty ways? Little boys, come on. Did you, did you catch anything, he says? No. Why would, why would he do that? Again, to dig at them, to really start to get them to think, to, to really prove his point. He wants them to face up and to own their failure. Again, we are so like allergic to failure in this world today that you realize that I think sometimes, I don't think, I know sometimes what God is trying to do in your life is he's trying to shine a light and say, you failed you need to know it. You need to own it and recognize it and fess up to it. Especially you, Peter, who all of the time that I've been with you, Peter, you've tried to display your own self-sufficiency instead of relying on Jesus' all-sufficiency. He wants them to face it. He wants them to announce it. It becomes even more apparent and personal as he publicly restores Peter later on. We'll read it here in just a minute. Guys, stop at this moment. Time out moment. In many ways, the only way to be fully restored is to face your failure publicly. That's scary. To admit it, to allow the forgiveness of Jesus to wash over you, transform you, redeem you, set you up for a life of faithful service. Guys, God wants us to face our failures and admit our mistakes so that we can be set up for greater and more fruitful service. He doesn't do it because he wants to rub it in your face and make you remember it for the rest of your life. He does that with Peter here. One time, Peter, we're going to pull this out in the public, into the light. You're going to say it, you're going to recognize it, and we're going to move on from it. Now, there is a simple thought here that we would be tempted to miss, that we generally do miss, and it's this. The right side of the boat that they're on is about seven and a half feet away from the left side of the boat. First century, the Galilean boats were about 30 by seven and a half to eight feet. And Jesus said, just lift your nets up, go seven and a half feet, and you'll catch something. It doesn't make much sense, does it, right? Probably, especially to a fisherman. But we've already said in a previous sermon, Jesus, God himself, does not operate on logic. It doesn't make a sense, but boy, what a difference seven and a half feet make, right? You drop the nets over here. What a difference seven and a half feet make when you're following the leading and the direction of the Lord. Maybe for... Some of you, that's what you really need to hear today when you came in here. 
Now, maybe it's not seven and a half feet. Maybe it's just the slightest little thing that you need to do. Maybe it's a major thing that you need to do. But what you need to do is you need to do it because God's calling you to it. Skip Heitzig says it this way, the difference between success and failure oftentimes in the Christian life is the width of a boat. It's just the smallest change. One change at a time. Guys, listen, you can be really confident, you can be really knowledgeable, you can be really diligent, but it's better to just be obedient. Go where God wants you to go. Do what God's called you to do. And it's significant as well, guys, that all this time Peter has been running as far and as fast as he could away from Jesus, that again, he jumps in the water and he starts going towards Jesus. Also, don't miss another important feature. There's so much in these 25 verses. What does it say when they come to shore that Jesus already had breakfast made and he was, he was making that over what does it say there? A charcoal fire. This is a very unique phrase that's only used twice in Scripture. Where else do we find a charcoal fire in the Gospels? And Peter was in that courtyard warming his hands as he denied Jesus three times. You, you want to talk about a moment where Peter got it and that hit him? Jesus sets all of this story up to be a mirror for Peter. You denied me three times over a fire, but now I have prepared a meal for you over this charcoal fire. And in ancient times, to eat with somebody, and I've said this before, meant intimate, close, friend, fellowship, and relationship. But to eat a meal with somebody has done, who has done you so wrong, as Peter did to Jesus, is a gesture of forgiveness. Peter denied Jesus, and Jesus is essentially saying at this point, with something as simple as a charcoal fire, Peter, I have made this fire for you. I have cooked this meal for you. It is a gesture of forgiveness. It's his way of saying, I'm willing to reconcile. I'm not holding anything against you or over you, Peter. But still, the issue needs to be dealt with, doesn't it? See, we would like that in life, wouldn't we? It was like, Jesus, if you would just make me a fire and cook me a meal, we could just move past all this stuff. Jesus will do that, but only when we've dealt with the issue at hand, and he does that in the last few verses we're going to read in 21 here. After that breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, which is significant, right? He has never, ever called Peter Simon, son of John. He's called him Simon at the beginning, but he's called him Peter for three years. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. A third time he asked him, you see what's going on here, by the way, don't you? Three times is very significant. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Three times Jesus is asking and giving him a chance to be restored. He asks the question the third time, and Peter says, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, I, you need to feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were young, you weren't able to go and do as you liked. You dressed yourself. You went ever, wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch your hands out and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And then Jesus told Peter two very significant words, follow me. Now, a fair question to ask at this point is why would Jesus have this encounter with Peter who is so obviously shamed and hurting because of what he's done? More to the point, why would Jesus have this conversation in such a public way with all of his buddies listening? And right? That's embarrassing, isn't it? Would you want your deepest, darkest sin and your struggle and your failure to just be aired publicly to everybody, even if it's in the company of your closest friends? Isn't that cruel? No, it's not, and here is why, not just for Peter, but also for our own lives. Number one, significantly in this story, Jesus and Peter had already privately met. We get that small exchange and the indication of that in Luke chapter 24. They've already met about this, and I believe they've already talked about Peter's really massive mess up. 
And here is the second thing to note, and this does apply to all of us and to Peter in this story. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, a man's repentance and his restoration should be as notorious as his sin and failing. See, when you see somebody really flame out and mess up, it's public and everybody gets to look at it. What we often don't get to see is the comeback story, and that should be just as, if not more important, more public. And Jesus starts with this question, doesn't he? He asks a very simple question. Do you love me more than these? Again, the question is, what's he talking about there? More, who are the more than these? You know my answer to it? I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't say. We can't be exactly certain. Jesus could have been looking at the nets and the fish and the boat, and he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than these tools of your occupation that you've been trained to use and what you've been trained to do? Do you love me more than doing that? He could have been looking at the other apostles and he could have been asking, do you love me more than you love your friends? Number three, he could have been asking that question in a comparative sense. Do you love me more than they love me? Again, after all, Peter was the one who said, even if everybody else deserts you and abandons you, I will still be there. I really, really, really love you, Jesus. Do you really, Peter? I mean, the language is really important here, by the way. Because there's a wordplay that's going on as Jesus asks this question three times. The first time, the first two times that he uses this word love, he uses the word agape. It is a 100% all-in, self-sacrificing, divine kind of love where you're willing to put Jesus before everything else. Peter, are you willing to do that? And Peter answers the question, and when he does that, he doesn't use the word agape. He uses the word phileo, which is a brotherly love. I admire you, Jesus. And so what's the, what's the angle here? What's the play when Jesus asks this question in the story? Do you love me, Peter? It's interesting that by the third time Jesus asks that question, he doesn't say agape. He, he, he comes down to Peter's level and he says, do you phileo me? Do you, do you even really admire me and look up to me, Peter? What, what is the play here? It's the play whenever there is a, a question in Scripture, oftentimes. Especially a question from God to his people. Is Guys, he always wants you to be honest first and foremost with yourself. Finding God's restoration plan for your life starts with being honest with yourself about yourself. We overestimate ourselves, don't we? how much greater we are, how much smarter we are. I could stand up here and tell you I am, I'm the best looking dude in this room. And you know what the problem is? Every other dude in this room goes, no, you aren't, because I am. That's how we operate. Ladies, when I got, I, Jean comes up here and she says, I, I have the greatest hair in this room. And all the other ladies are like, what are you thinking? You don't, I, I have the greatest hair in this room. Guys, you need to be honest about yourself and stop overestimating yourself. And you need to stop also underestimating yourself and you need to estimate yourself on what God says about you, what Jesus reveals about you. And so there's a question that he asks, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And next there's a reaction and, Jesus, and Peter says, what? You know that I love you. Skip Heitzig again says in this little interview, hey, this is a the truest come-to-Jesus moment you could ever imagine. Peter now realizes, I don't even know if I can live for you, Jesus. And Jesus says, in effect, Peter, not only will you live for me, and not only will you feed your sheep, but the day is coming when you will die for me. And that's where the last part of the process comes in. Jesus asks a question. He gets a reaction from Peter, even hurt the third time he asks that question. And then he gives a commission. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, feed my sheep. Three times Jesus commissions Peter and he says, feed my sheep. Now, this is where it gets mind-boggling to me. You would expect that after Peter's colossal failure in everything, and his inability to say, Jesus, I love you 100%. I love you 100% agape love. That Jesus would turn and he would look at Peter and say, we had a good run, buddy, didn't we? But I can never use you in ministry because you have failed. We would expect that because that's, 
how we often think in our own minds. That's how the world teaches us to think. If you mess up, you can never come back from that. Jesus would never want you back after that. What does Jesus do? He does the direct opposite, doesn't he? He says, I know you fail, but I'm going to entrust you with the most important thing in the world to me, and that is that's my sheep, my flock, my church. Not only, Peter, are you a fisher of men, I want you to be a shepherd of sheep. I'm commissioning you into service, not just to catch people, but to feed them, to nourish them, to tend them. Guys, your setback, any setback you have in life, very well can be and often is the hinge point of your comeback. It's a bookend. It's a mirror. For a guy in Peter who had failed and denied the Lord, something happened to him to make him become very, very prominent in the book of Acts. He learned from his failure. He was remade. He was renewed. He was finally restored. Chuck Colson, if you know Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson worked in the Nixon administration, and he was caught up in the whole Watergate saga and scandal. He went to prison for it. He became a very prominent Christian, uh, a, a guy who had a heart for prison ministry uh, and for apologetics, and he said this about his life. He said, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure. You're thinking to yourself, I don't really want that to be the legacy of my life. But listen, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose my life. Stop running away from the moments that you really massively fail because those are the moments that every single time God will use to make a comeback in your life. If you would just face up to it, you would fess it, you would admit it. And so what does it mean to be restored by the Lord? Really quickly, just some things that I see in this story that I, I hope you've seen as we've read it this morning. There are three elements of a comeback. First and foremost, before anything, you need to embrace your weakness. You need to admit your failures. Embracing and admitting is a starting point for tapping into the power and the grace of Jesus. Guys, Peter's failures, our failures, bring us closer to Jesus than any of our successes ever could. Three things. Love greatly. Love Jesus greatly and more than anything in your life what Peter says here. Peter is saying to Jesus, I am simply giving you a heart that's open to you, Jesus, and that Christ therefore knows that he loves him, and it's the best love that Peter can give in that moment that he's capable of. Another man by the name of Alexander McLaren said it this way, Jesus Christ asks each of us not only for our obedience, he does ask for that, but he asks most importantly for our heart, and that being given, all the rest will follow in life. Love greatly. Serve faithfully. He says in verse 18, Peter, I'm going to tell you the truth. You have done everything that you've wanted to do in your life your own way, in your own time. There's coming a time when that won't happen anymore. You're going to die. And you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, where's good news in this? Because again, remember Peter once bragged, I will die for you, Jesus, and he failed. Really, Peter? Because when the pressure was on, you couldn't live for me, let alone die for me. But now, Peter, I'm going to give you a glimpse. You're getting a second chance, and you will be faithful this time. History shows for the next three decades, Peter labored faithfully for the Lord, and he was eventually crucified, many people believe, upside down in Rome because he felt like, I am not worthy to die the way that Jesus did. And he succeeded, didn't he? He failed the first time, but he succeeded the second. Peter, you're not just going to live for me. You will get the opportunity to die for me. The news is, guys, God can turn our greatest sins and failures into his greatest moment of triumph. Love greatly, serve faithfully, follow continually. Verse 19, there are significant words there. Follow me. And as Jesus says, follow me, I wish I was there that day and I could prove it, but I believe that Peter probably started getting a smile on his face. And do you know why he got a smile on his face? Because what Jesus said was a memory trigger. You know what a memory trigger is, don't you? There are some songs that you hear in your life and you hear lyrics or you hear a song, you're like, that reminds me of something. Years ago, 
Reminds me of when I met my wife or when I met my husband or when I was with my friend in that really tough time of my life. It's when you smell something in the kitchen and it reminds you of your mama's cooking years ago. That's a memory trigger. And this is a memory trigger for Peter because you remember, and I challenge you to go there later, Luke chapter 5. Again, I told you this whole story in John 21 is a mirror for Peter because at the very beginning of Peter's life, do you know what happens at the beginning of Peter's life when Jesus calls him? Hey, Peter, could you push your boat out deeper in the water so I can have like a floating pulpit here? Yeah, just go deeper. Yeah, more, more, all right? And Peter fishes and he fishes and he fishes and he doesn't catch a single thing in Luke chapter 5. And Jesus says, would you just let your nets down on the other side of the boat? You see what's happening here, right? It's the same story all over again. And Jesus says, as he looks at Peter, what does Peter do in that moment when he realizes he catches all the fish? He looks at Jesus and he says, get away from me. I cannot be around you, doesn't he? He bows himself to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Follow me. Jesus calls Peter at the beginning of his ministry. Peter has a massive failure. And here at the end, a bookend, in almost the same way that he calls him, he says, I'm giving you your comeback here, Peter. Follow me, continue. Love me greatly. Serve me faithfully. There's a story of a man who visited his friend in a large American city, and what impressed the man visiting the most was at the center of town there was this impressive park that was filled with trees and grass, lush green grass, fountains, lots of people back and forth on the, and on the benches, and it was very impressive, but he said the thing that impressed him the most was when his friend said this, did you know that at one time this beautiful park that you're admiring so much was the city dump? But the fathers of this town had the foresight to, and the energy to pump money into this city dump area and to reclaim this land and restore it. And here it is. Beautiful. Better than it ever was before. Guys, that is, that's the business that, that God is in. Making dumps into beautiful city parks making broken down and destroyed lives into people that he could use for his kingdom and ministry and fruitful, fruitful ministry. Guys, all of us in here have a past. We have good memories and we have bad memories that still affect us in the way that we live our lives today. And I'm here to tell you this morning, and not just I'm here to tell you this morning, Jesus wants you to know this morning, God's word tells you this morning that no matter what happened in your past, no matter what you've lived, God's goal is to bring you to a condition where the negativity and the toxicity of your life and your past no longer affects your present and your future life with him. In his word, the Lord promises to restore the fullness of our lives. There is a, a verse in Joel chapter 2, very obscure book in Joel 2.25, and he says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, to the hopping locust, to the stripping locust, to the cutting locust. And you're like, that's, that's cool. Why in the world do I need to know about bugs? Why are there four bugs in here? Because together those bugs would attack the plant, all of the plant, the leaves, the branches, the stalk, and then finally the root. And then what would be left after all those bugs and insects attacked that plant? Nothing. The plant would be destroyed. Guys, maybe today you feel totally destroyed. That God can't use you. That you're finished. There's no way. Guys, that's, that's enemy talk. That's Satan talk. God can never use you again. God's word tells a different story, doesn't it? God intends for you to be restored. He wants you to be restored. He desires for you to be restored. He will restore to you the years that you have lost, that have been nibbled and eaten away, no matter what has happened to you. But we have to have our sin openly revealed. We have to see the magnitude of our sin. We have to be driven to repentance, deep, godly, biblical repentance, so that we can experience the restoration that God so deeply desires for us to have. Guys, if we never own it, we will never grow out of it. Why do you think you struggle with the same things over and over again? Because you've not brought it out into the light. If you don't own it, you will never grow out of it, and you will never grow into the things that God has for your life, the greater, higher, more purposeful, and fruitful things for your life, guys. 
Through our weakness, and only through our weakness, repentance for a wrong committed, God can lead us with his strength. Restoration through what he has done, a life that he has given. So don't be so proud, guys, that in life you, you can't live with a limp. Like, every one of us in here is just, we're just going to limp our way to eternity because we are weak, we are flawed, and we do fail, but God's grace and strength is bigger than that. Don't be so proud that you can't come to terms with that. There's a story, and actually, I believe the story was told, and then years later, Kenny Rogers wrote a song called The Greatest. Have any of you heard the song The Greatest by Kenny Rogers? The story of the greatest pitcher in the world, or the greatest batter in the world goes this way. There's a little boy in the backyard one day, and as every little boy does, he gets back there and he tosses that ball up, and he says he tossed that ball the first time, and he swung as hard as he can. <laughs> Strike one. It's all right. It's all right. I'm, not, I'm the greatest batter in the world. And he threw that ball up a second time. All of his might, just everything grunting all the way. <laughs> Strike two. That's all right. I am, I am the greatest batter in the world. He's saying it to everybody. He throws that ball up the third time and he swings right through it. Strike three. And the story goes, the boy says, well, gee, I didn't know that I was the greatest pitcher in the world. Or as Kenny Rogers would say at the end of his song, the greatest, I am the greatest. That is understood but even I didn't know I could pitch that good. Guys, that's the story that God writes. That's the story God's writing in all of our lives today and will for all of eternity that no matter where you are, you can make a comeback. No matter how broken down you are and destroyed, he can make beautiful things out of that and restore you. As the worship team comes back up here, would you bow your heads with me and would we say a word of prayer as we close this morning. Lord, it's hard to believe that, honestly, probably for most of us in here, that you have the ability to take our lives because only really we know our lives. We know the things that we think. We know the things that we say. We know the things that we have done. Certainly some people know more public things, but there are so many things that we hide, except for there's one person we can't hide anything from. You. And yet, Scripture gives us every assurance and bit of confidence that you don't look at us and you don't look to us and say, you know what, you're just a failure. I never want to use you again. I never want to see you again, Lord, that you say the complete opposite. If you would just come to me, if you would just stop running away, if you would just come to me to find your rest, I would use you for greater and greater things. Lord, may we know that this morning. As we sing this final song, it's a fitting song, Lord, to sing to you that we need you. We desperately need you in every possible way in our lives, Lord. That we would really believe that this morning. With everything that we are, with everything we have, we say we need you, Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Everybody said. Amen. Would you-